Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Hello and welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Jonathan Kay and I am Quillette's Canadian editor. Quillette is a young publication. In fact, we've only been around since 2015, but some of our more regular writers already have a strong following among readers. One of them is Coleman Hughes, who's written such blockbuster Quillette articles as Kanye West and the Future of Black Conservatism, The Racism Treadmill, and The High Price of Stale Grievances. Coleman is one of only two monthly columnists at Quillette, but what makes him really unique among our contributors is that, A, he's a skilled musician who once appeared in Rihanna's backup band at the MTV Video Music Awards, and B, he's so young that he hasn't even graduated yet from Columbia University. I recently caught up with Coleman at Quillette's New York studio and asked him how his original and provocative journalism at Quillette was being received by his Columbia classmates and by other traditionally liberal constituencies. Here's our recording of that interview. Coleman, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on. Coleman, I knew before I met you, I guess this is the second time because I met you briefly at the Heterodox Academy Conference here in New York a few weeks back. I knew you were young. In fact, I knew you went to Columbia. You were a student. Uh, what I didn't realize is, in fact, that you're actually a couple of years from graduating. You're not even a senior. For somebody like me who's in his 40s, uh, it's great to see young people who think outside the box. I guess my first question that I would have for you Reading your stuff in Quillette, it is, in fact, very heterodox stuff, not in line with some of the social justice stuff you read, certainly in student newspapers and so forth. Has writing for Quillette and expressing yourself as, I guess you could call yourself maybe a classic, I'll let you define yourself, but I, it strikes me that you're a classic liberal. Mm. How has this affected your relationship ideologically with your peers on a university campus like Columbia, which, like most elite universities, is a fairly liberal place? Yeah, Columbia is very liberal, and uh, my public writing has taken place entirely this summer after school ended. So I don't know how my views, insofar as they're known by my peers, will affect my social life at Columbia. So far, it hasn't happened, but again, it's been this summer, so I haven't been interacting with people at Columbia. It could be totally fine. It could be a burden on my social life? We'll see. Well, so just in terms of establishing the chronology here, this podcast, we're, I'm talking to you here in August. Yeah. So you're going to school in a few weeks. Yeah. We're going to follow up with you to see how sure. that works out. But I remember there was an article in, I think it was the New Yorker uh, a little while ago. You may remember it, it focused on Oberlin College. Mm. And it was talking a little bit about how there has been some pushback against really hardcore social justice culture. Mm -hmm. um, and I think in that article, they, they profiled one or two people who, a little bit like yourself, are people who have pushed back. Mm. Do you sense, I guess going back to your first year or two at Columbia, that there are other people like you on campus who are essentially mainstream in their politics, but 
are willing to push back against some of the ideological strictures associated with social justice culture? Yes, there are definitely people who are willing to push back against the mainstream orthodoxy. The problem is that it's deeply stigmatized. It's really the campus free speech problem is basically a problem of a, a minority that yields disproportionate power that controls the newspapers that people read on campus. Well, really the one newspaper. But you contribute to that newspaper. I, <laughs> What's the name of it? It's called the Columbia Spectator. I, I, I've contributed one piece to that newspaper, and the, the context of my contribution tells you everything you need to know about how ideologically siloed that newspaper is. My friend Christian Gonzalez, who's been writing for the National Review the last uh, two months, he's a conservative, great writer. Is, is he a fellow student? He's a fellow student, and I actually met him through a piece that he wrote for Quillette that I thought made a lot of sense, and I reached out to him, and we became very good friends. He wrote a piece in the school newspaper protecting what Columbia calls its core curriculum, which is essentially the Western canon. Which sometimes is criticized as being authored by dead white Europeans. Exactly, okay. exactly. The criticism is that it's racist because it, you know, and sexist because it's mostly dead white men, which by my lights is an ignorant criticism because... History did not distribute all of the uh, sort of cultural and economic advantages that led certain countries at certain times to produce lots of intellectual work. If you want to read the first anti-slavery texts, you're going to be reading dead white men. You're, that's just a fact that you have to grapple with, and it's not racist or sexist to say so. This is the argument Christian made in the in the newspaper. He's kind of the token conservative that they have and treat rather terribly, but he's, he's very gracious about it. Another columnist wrote a piece responding to him, which was much more widely read around campus, saying that he was, quote, indoctrinated into white supremacy. I felt, since there's no good way to defend yourself from the charge of being indoctrinated into white supremacy without sounding like a white supremacist, there's no good way, way to say, I'm not racist I just felt like I should come to his defense. It's better to have others come to your defense. So, so, so I tried to write a piece. So that article was styled as a rebuttal to your friend. Ex exactly, yes. And it was more widely read. So I tried to submit a piece rebutting that rebuttal, pointing out that, for example, Martin Luther King read many of the people that we read in, in, in the core curriculum and explicitly said that he learned a great deal from them, despite the fact that they were white and male and dead. So I wrote this piece, and it took me about a month to get through the editors because, like I said, the editors are very married to a particular set of beliefs that I would identify as far left and are deeply resistant to narratives that counter that. Uh, so I had to meet with them in person. Eventually, I got it through with many, many, many edits. But... I think that story is indicative of the problem, which is that people are reading this newspaper and they're getting their sense of what beliefs are beyond the pale from this newspaper. So even if there are a lot of people on campus who are totally reasonable in their politics, getting their sense of what is taboo and what isn't taboo from the campus newspaper, people will self-censor, people will, uh, they will just learn what can and cannot be said. When we think of the idea of hypocrisy among ideologues, you know, one model of it is the social conservative who goes to church and expresses support for the Ten Commandments 
and social conservatism, but then goes home and in his or her private life is, is a libertine and exhibits all the sins of the flesh that many other people exhibit. There seems to be this, this analogy that takes place on campuses, but it seems to have spread maybe to Twitter, where people are, feel the need to support dogmas that are extremely rigid, but maybe in their private lives and with their friends, they let their guard down. Mm. So the, the same phenomenon on, on the left is on the right. Some of these people you're describing, say people who control the newspaper or whatnot, like did you have social relationships with them outside that context? Where Absolutely, you, yeah. But So in more informal contexts, could you joke around with them? And were, totally. Were they, so, so they were less rigid in their Absolutely. interest. So it's like an act. Uh, yeah, I, I, maybe it's an act. That's one way to characterize it. Another way to characterize it is just that when you're having a human face-to-face interaction with someone who you seem to like, you know, seems nice enough, seems pro-social, it's extremely hard to tell that person to their face that they're an a-hole. You know, like once you're friends with someone and then you realize you have political differences, to hash those out in person, I find those conversations tend to go very well. Um, it's, it's when you get to Twitter, when people are anonymous, when you're not, you, 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 you can't make all of these little caveats and just show with facial cues that you don't mean harm. It's in that context that things tend to get really nasty. I find most of my conversations face to face tend to go very well. I think there are a lot of older writers, I guess I'd put myself in that category because I'm in my forties and I'm, uh, twice your age who remember the first wave of political correctness from the 80s and 90s and maybe assume that everything is the same as it was back then in some respects. Uh, but obviously social media is going to have changed the dynamic. We've been talking about Twitter, but is it Facebook groups? Are there interactions in actual courses and maybe on discussion forums associated with those courses? Like what is the method by which people are called out and stigmatized? Is it just Twitter? Like It's largely social media. Okay. Again, like I say, I mean, how often in your life have you seen someone in a room full of people who is a normal socialized human being yell at someone for being a racist or a sexist or, or a homophobe? It doesn't happen that often in real life, in actual settings where there are actually flesh and blood people around because... It's just there's a, there's more of a reputational cost to spoiling an evening by accusing someone of X, Y, or Z. On the internet, there's less of a reputational cost. It takes about five seconds of your time. There's no evening to ruin. And uh, except in a university, you know, it's a small place. You guys, you know, know each other. Are you on Twitter sometimes with people who, hey, that, that, that person's in my class or that person uh, lives near me? No, that, that hasn't happened yet. Again, I can't guarantee what's going to happen once I get back to campus and you know, it is discovered that uh, I have views about racial inequality that are deeply out of step with the narrative one is supposed to believe at a place like Columbia. So I, you know, I, I just don't know. But for the most part, the highest levels of toxicity in the conversation are found on social media, not in real life. Columbia University, this fact that it has this core canon, I think that's an interesting aspect of it. I think sometimes people lump campus culture, make it sound homogenous. Just the phrase campus culture suggests that it's homogenous. But a lot of the times when we talk about campus culture, sometimes we have in mind a few horror stories like from Evergreen State or some of the liberal arts, small liberal arts colleges uh, like Oberlin. 
how does Colombia compare to these places? Mm-hmm. Because I'm not sure I've seen Colombia in the news mm-hmm. in the context of some of these spats. Mm-hmm. Would you say that it's a more reasonable place than, than some of the other, these other places that have had their controversies? I think, I mean, Oberlin and Evergreen strike me as the most extreme of the extreme. I think Colombia is bad, but I don't think it's that bad. I can attest to being in classes, trying to, for example, express the belief that men and women aren't biologically or psychologically identical, and that some of those psychological differences are the consequence of biology, not of socialization. I've been in classes where that opinion is absolutely unexpressible, even by someone like me, who I, you know, I, I've, I think it's true to say that I have a fairly stiff spine in terms of voicing unpopular opinions. But the, I, I've been in one class where I could not bring myself for almost any amount of money to give, to just express that belief. I've been in other classes though, where with a bit of courage and the ability to give the right caveats at the right times and preempt people's concerns, I have been able to voice that opinion, for and, example. And is the difference the climate that the professor sets, or is it That this? is huge. The, the professor is probably the biggest, uh, I mean, I, the students matter too, but most students are just in class trying to get a good grade, right? It's like mo- most students are not concerned with, hyper-concerned with ideology. They're just kind of going along with the tide and trying to get good grades and thinking about their relationships and their career. So right. the, the, the classes in which there was an atmosphere where you could say, maybe you had a, there's a broader range of ideas you could express. Mm-hmm. What were some of the best practices to use an MBA term that the teachers did? Was it, was it an implicit thing that the teacher themselves would get, would provide sort of devil's advocate arguments or was it the reading list? It was largely, it's not really about the reading list because a teacher can present any text from any point of view in a way that makes it clear that this text is not gospel. This text can be disagreed with. You know, so I've, I've read Foucault in, in one class where it was clear that Foucault was gospel. I've also read the same Foucault text in another, in, in another class where it was clear you could agree or disagree with anything Foucault was saying. What you, what you said initially is, is the center of the bullseye, which is the teacher has to present both sides of an argument and acknowledge that there is perhaps validity to both sides. The teacher has to be willing to show a degree of flexibility in the arguments that the teacher is capable of making and has to be charitable in the sense that the teacher has to make it clear, I'm not here to dictate to you what to believe. I'm here to dictate to you how to think, not what to think. And the, the classes in which I felt comfortable expressing viewpoints that were not narrowly far left were the classes in which the professors did a great job of that. And the opposite holds true for uh, the professors who who didn't do that well. You're several years away from graduation, but even at your stage, I think students start to think about what they're going to do after university, including the possibility of graduate school. In your case, have you thought about the idea that, hey, maybe if I'm looking to get into a graduate program, I'm probably going to have to toe the line on certain ideological issues. I know the context is, you know, someone like Lindsay Shepard, the Canadian master's student, she was actually already a graduate student at the time she became politically active about uh, academic freedom and free speech and that sort of thing. And I think it's it's received wisdom that she's 
compromised her ability to go much further in academia mm. because of some of the views she's expressed. Uh, in your case, I don't think you've you've been as provocative as as, as Lindsay Shepard has. Mm. But have people talked to you and said, you know, hey, you have to be careful sometimes about what you say because in the age of the internet, this is going to be on your record and universities maybe don't want to hire scholars who ruffle the feathers ideologically? Yes, many people have warned me that I'm making myself less attractive for graduate programs and I'm I'm honestly not worried about it because A, I don't know that I'm going to go to graduate school. I, if I do, I it would probably be either philosophy or economics, which tend to be more open than other fields. And if I don't, then I'll find something else to do. But I'm not comfortable censoring myself in advance because, I mean, it, you know, it could already be the case that what I've written already is enough to compromise me. So, you know, there's no marginal benefit for me to start censoring myself now. One of your pieces that you wrote for Quillette talked about you appearing on stage with, with Rihanna. Yeah. 2016? Mm-hmm. How did that happen? Out of high school, I was bent on being a professional musician. I play the trombone and I make money doing that. And through my musician professional contacts, uh, a lady reached out to me to be in Rihanna's backup band for the VMAs in 2016. That's the Video Music Awards? Video Music Awards, yeah. And it was extremely fun. A, a couple of my friends also got the call. The reason I told that story in that Colette piece was because one of my friends who got the call was a, a white Hispanic and the other of my friends who got it were black. And then the white Hispanic friend ended ended up getting fired before the VMAs and replaced because they wanted to have an all-black aesthetic on stage. My point here was that if that had been done the other way around, if it had been someone seeking to get an all-white aesthetic for their country star, that would have been front-page New York Times news. But... This this kind of thing, I'm pointing out the double standards, the way in which black people can act out their tribalism without any fear of of social punishment or of social disapproval where white people can't, and questioning the rationales for why that is so. So this brings us a little bit back to, I guess, Foucault and the idea of power and power relationships defining everything, including the meaning of the words we use, and the definition of racism, the idea that if, if one group is in power, they can be racist. If a, if a group is disempowered, the word racism doesn't apply because mm-hmm. they're not in power. And that, from the conservative point of view, that leads to double standards. Mm-hmm. But there is a logic in that asymmetry to a certain extent. Even as somebody, I work for Quillette, I write for Quillette, I, I, am, I regard myself as a classic liberal, I am somewhat sympathetic to the idea that the single word racism, it doesn't really, doesn't seem to fit classic white on black KKK type racism in the same way that if you flip the tables and uh, you had black musicians saying, hey, look, we're looking for a black mm-hmm. look. Like, would you say that there is a difference? And I, you know, I'm not a Foucauldian, but mm-hmm. you do see the argument there that there might be a moral difference because of the power imbalance that, go, that acts along racial lines, right? Um, yes and no. I mean, if you mean that a given person's racism can have more or less of an effect on others based on how much power that 
particular person has, that's a totally sound argument. And insofar as one wants to define racism as a concept where power is built in, you know, you, I, I suppose we're free to define words however we want because you know, language is a bottom-up phenomenon that none of us get to decide. So if that's what we decide racism means, then I'm all on board. But I mean, you could do this with any word. You could redefine murder as something that only white people can do. doesn't change the ethics of the action of killing another human being. Um, nor does redefining racism change the ethics of prejudging someone based on their skin color. Um, is this a is this a swearing friendly podcast? We always have the beep button in post production, so do your worst. Okay. So at at, at my family is black. I, I had a family reunion many years ago in which one of my very old great uncles, who uh, is of a uh, of a different generation and has he's you know a bit of a black redneck in the sense that white people have rednecks with very t- views t- that are retrograde and. You know, coming from a kind of, you get the sense of what I'm saying. Rednecks can be any any culture. Exactly. Yeah. So, one one person in my family married a white woman, brought that white woman to the family reunion, and he said to him, "Who is this white? Bitch? Is that racist? How much power did she have when she was in the room of her husband meeting his entire family? She had no power at all in that context. Part of my problem with the power narrative is that." Yeah, it's true, but it's also extremely local. I've been in context where my being black was clearly a, an advantage in this particular room. I've been in other contexts where, where my being black was a disadvantage socially in this particular context. So to think of white privilege and the, the power that white people are thought to have as a kind of gaseous substance that fills up the space of an entire country in the way that gas fills up a room evenly – that is absolutely no longer true of this country. There, If you're applying to college, it is very advantageous to be black in that context. If you were in a different context, it may be advantageous to be white, but we can't talk about privilege and power as if it pervades every corner of the U.S. equally in one way. I think some of the ways we talk about racism and, and other irrational forms of bigotry is because of asymmetries in people's perspective. I know that in Canada, for instance, when people talk about uh, First Nations, they talk about it in the same uniform way. I actually think there's a lot of parts of Canada where First Nations endure horrible bigotry. Hmm. And often, I, I hate to be classist, but uh, often it's sometimes in, in poorer working class environments. Uh, whereas when you get to a university, I think there's all sorts of formal and informal ways in which there is an active, active measures to promote First Nations culture hmm. and, and even affirmative action in regard to First Nations hiring. And I think both sides emphasize one scenario. So someone who's pushing back against affirmative action may take an episode that takes place on a campus and say, look at all the affirmative measures that are being done on behalf of First Nations people. Mm-hmm. But then there'll be some horror story of racism against First Nations people that takes place in a small rural community. Right. And is there a di- the same kind of dialogue of the deaf that takes place in the United States uh, along white black lines? Mm. Uh, not that the two are completely analogous, but I, I do sense that there is some similarity between those two dynamics. There is some similarity, definitely, in the sense that the type of black people who tend to benefit from affirmative action are you know, ty- kind of me, which, which is to say middle class or upper middle class tend to be the kinds of black people who didn't necessarily need the help to begin with. T- 
tend to be black immigrants rather than black Americans, which is to say their parents moved here from Nigeria or Jamaica, and they have a, a set of cultural values that are very similar to Asian American immigrants, very tend to be socially conservative, tend to be disproportionately hardworking, disproportionately focused on education. This is a distinction I almost never hear spoken of in the media. Oh, yeah. No, it's it's massive. I mean, I've talked about this anywhere from 40% to potentially half or more of black kids at Ivy League colleges are black immigrants or the children of black immigrants when black immigrants make up only one-tenth of the country's black people. This is a tangent, but um, why is... This statistical phenomenon is so pronounced. Uh, I'm curious as to why this doesn't get more discussion. And, and putting aside whether it's like the liberal media, the conservative media, it, it, that does sound like an interesting phenomenon. It's very interesting. Uh, one reason is because the people who would talk about this, namely sociologists, tend to be very averse to cultural explanations of disparity. The Harvard sociologist Orlando Patterson has talked about this. He, he's one of the few that has taken very seriously the idea that cultures can differ within one race, uh, and that can lead to very different outcomes among two ethnic groups. And uh, there's another Columbia sociologist who I I just read whose name I'm blanking on. I think it's Van. First name is Van something, who has done great work looking at West Indian blacks living in neighborhoods adjacent to black Americans living right next to each other in different New York neighborhoods, with sometimes with similar incomes but having very different outcomes in terms of education and various other metrics. Because we, we live in an age in which, at least on the left, cultural relativism is, is the predominant narrative. So it's very uh, discomforting for people to think that there could be two very different cultures within what we would normally think of as, quote, black people that are leading to very different outcomes because it suggests that Given a different set of cultural norms among black Americans, black Americans would have better outcomes, which is true. So uh, I went back and read your your pieces in Quillette, and I think what you just said, I think there is an undercurrent in your writing, which is about people making individual choices and perhaps looking past the idea of a legacy of hatred in the past and bigotry as being deterministic of the present and the future. Do you def- define yourself as, as, as a classic liberal or, or even a conservative? Or do you even, uh, someone of your generation, do you even put that kind of label on the way you think about our society? Uh, classical liberal is the closest label that I've ever found that makes sense of how I think about things. I've never thought of, thought of myself as a conservative, although I, I enjoy many conservative intellectuals. There are some liberal intellectuals I enjoy as well. So, but yeah, ultimately I don't, invest too much in any of these labels. And going back to this idea of the the classic canon uh, that exists uh, at Columbia, it's broadly true that some of the the greatest works in literature are based on the idea of individual choice, Mm -hmm. on the idea of the heroic mind, of choosing your path in life. Is that the element that you often find yourself up against, whether it's in class or with your friends, this idea of individual responsibility, uh, which is certainly from the perspective of if Foucault is your guide, fixated on power relationships between groups, mm. can you even have a discussion with people who don't embrace your classical liberal ideas on campus? I find I can have discussions with people. Uh, like I said, I, f- I find face-to-face discussions tend to go pretty well. 
is the center of my conflicts with people my age a matter of individual versus collective? That's definitely one big point upon which I tend to take, I tend to be on the individualist side of things, which is to say, the the individual is the unit of moral concern and moral responsibility. But that you can't. That is a controversial statement. It right isn't. It isn't because that it's a controversial statement. But people thirty years ago people, it wasn't, but now it is. But people obey it in many respects. A, a point I have made, for example, Jewish people do not go around to German Americans holding them responsible for the Holocaust. Some might be tempted to. But we recognize that to be an invalid move because that particular person of German descent is not the person who was responsible for the Holocaust. Black people do, many black intellectuals, especially on the left, go around blaming modern day white people for slavery and Jim Crow when they had absolutely nothing to do with it. So what, you know, we do actually implicitly recognize the primacy of the individual over the collective in most other cases. We just make this one exception in this country for black people, for descendants of one particular population. The descendants of West Africans in one particular country somehow get treated differently. In terms of the dynamic between groups that you observed on Columbia, uh, on the Columbia campus, you often hear the reductionist term people of color. Mm-hmm. But it strikes me that especially since the controversy about Harvard's admission policies allegedly suppressing admission of Asian Americans based on, on bogus criteria, has there been a fracturing of the, this idea of one unifying people of color constituency? Hmm. It strikes me that in the current climate, maybe people who are South Asian or East Asian on some of these issues, and I think Harvard is the most obvious example, but there might be others, the idea of people of color is sort of reductionist because a lot of times you'd be coming at these things from different perspectives. How have you seen that play out on the Columbia campus? Yes, people of color is a phrase that is very much in vogue. It has always been a kind of a fiction because the interests, insofar as one can talk about the interests of a whole class of people like black people, it's not at all clear that they have the interests of black people have ever been aligned with the interests on the whole of, for example, Mexican Americans. It has been argued by respected sociologists that many working class blacks have faced competition from Mexican immigrants in a way that ended up to the detriment of those working class blacks, just like same as is true of working class whites. You know, it's uh, affirmative action is a perfect example. It clearly benefits black people and clearly does not benefit Asians. In fact, it is worse for Asians than it than it is for whites. Have you heard any rumblings on Colombia that people accusing Colombia of having its own version of, of, of the Harvard policies? There, the president of Colombia, Lee Bollinger, was interviewed a few weeks ago. And the interviewer asked him about the Harvard scandal. And he said, well, Harvard didn't use quotas, so they did nothing wrong, so far as I'm concerned. That was essentially his take, which I think is absolutely ridiculous because whether one specifically uses quotas or not is actually a secondary issue because what you're doing with affirmative action is just holding different races of people to different standards. And the effect is the same as if you had gone out there with a quota to begin with. It's the same. The processes might 
differ nominally, but the effect is exactly the same. And the fact that he says, or, you know, he really has to say this, I guess, you know, the incentives facing him are much like the incentives facing a politician in the face of a scandal, which is deflect, 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 deny, deny, deny. So I understand why he says this. He's, he's also someone who has fought for affirmative action in the past in courts. So I don't know what will happen at Columbia. Like many other colleges, they, they, just, they just hide the data about how they admit people. And they hide the data about the average GPAs and majors that blacks go into. All of the data that would be needed to adjudicate the wisdom of a policy like affirmative action is hidden. And one has to wonder why. So when I went to law school two decades ago, uh, one of the uh, decisions, Supreme Court decisions we studied was, uh, I believe it was called Bakke. Mm-hmm. It's a 1978, if I remember correctly, uh, decision. And it justified, I remember there was one justice who had the deciding vote, and the justice talked about the benefits of diversity as being an important criterion and, and one that universities had the right to, to focus on when they were choosing the pool of student applicants. Sometimes I think among conservatives, diversity is sort of it's used in scare quotes. Mm-hmm. I think, though, even some conservatives would acknowledge that there are benefits to diversity and that I think even many conservatives would feel, feel weird being on a campus that was all Hispanic or mm-hmm. all white or all Asian. Do you acknowledge and do you enjoy the idea of Columbia being a diverse place? Uh, like, what is your take on the idea of diversity? Yeah, I've never been one to totally write off diversity. I think there is something to be said for having a wide range of people of different backgrounds in a given place. You do, you know, you benefit from meeting people that aren't like you, generally speaking. Because some of your most interesting observations I've heard you make are, you know, the difference between different kinds of blacks and right. Jews, and, and you seem to be well-versed in some of these dynamics and yeah. groups, that presumably in part that's because of your exposure right. to these groups on campus. Right. right. My sense is that using income as a, as a metric and geography as a metric rather than race would be better because you have to understand it's also just a nominal commitment to begin with. It's, it's a commitment in name only because colleges don't care where these black kids are coming from. They care that they're black and that they make the school look not racist, which is why some half of black kids at elite universities are not descendants of American slaves at all. And that never gets talked about. Is it because, you know, so you can talk about diversity. These are black kids who have a certain experience. Well, half of them have the experience of having parents from Barbados and Jamaica and Nigeria. And that tends to be a totally different experience than being a black person descended from American slavery. And that diversity is good, but that's not even the way it gets framed because it's just black people as a monolith who are bringing this diversity, these diverse perspectives. Not to mention there's very little concern with ideological diversity, which I think is, is worth cultivating. Uh, well, the financial diversity, or at least diversity in, in the means that your family had, uh, is, is, is interesting because it's so incredibly expensive to go to university. Mm-hmm. Have you met people on campus who, who come from genuinely poor backgrounds? Pe- yes. People of any race? Yes. And, and is that because Columbia does make an effort to include people who have, who have challenged backgrounds financially? I think Columbia is need blind. So if they do admit you, you will be able to go there. I think that's true to say. I'm not sure if they specifically use income as a metric to admit people. I'm, I know that they use race. Again, they're totally secretive about their policies. One wonders why. Because 
if it surfaced, they may not be able to justify it, uh, which I think is a mistake. I think we should be transparent about these but things. In, in defense of Lee Bollinger and other university administrators, you can see why it, it's seen as such an explosive subject. Mm-hmm. And they'd rather talk about anything in the world except for that. Exactly. Like yeah. I said, the incentives facing them, I'm not blaming them as people. I think if I were in their position and had their jobs and had to do that job well, I would be saying the exact same things that they were because they're responding to the incentives facing them, which are to avoid the scandalous, well, to avoid the Harvard situation right now at basically all costs. I think a lot of our listeners probably follow you on social media and and are familiar with uh, some of the uh, supportive comments you get and some of the criticism you get. In the same way that sometimes um, very doctrinaire male feminists will will try to correct uh, women who they think have insufficiently feminist opinions, do you ever get people who who are white who come at you and and criticize you because they think that your opinions, someone who's who's black, are harming black people or that, that you have the wrong take on racism, for instance. Do you ever get into conversations? Because like, I think it's... Yes, I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It'd be interesting to see, you know, black people, I'm sure, have different points of view on no, everything. I get, but I get criticism from black and white people on Twitter. Although I, I yeah. guess maybe I'm my own bias here. I think black people, it's understandable that, you know, in the same way that Jews will argue about what anti-Semitism is. Mm-hmm. Um, does it feel weird to have that kind of discussion with, with a white person who is maybe urging you to take a more expansive view of racism than you yourself take? And and how do you enter into those kind of discussions? Uh, I try to keep identity out of it. So I try to treat a criticism from a white person as identical to a criticism from a black person, because ultimately I think we should be more and more getting over our accidental identities that we happen to have been born into. So no, I don't, I don't really treat them differently. One last question, because I think you're spending the summer of 2018, I'm guessing in a different way than you spent the last summer, because you've become a much more prominent writer. I'm guessing this isn't the first or last podcast of the summer that you'll be doing. How has this affected the rest of your life? You know, a lot of students have summer jobs. Have you had to accommodate your life to the fact that you now are getting calls for podcasts and to do writing and to be sort of a, a media presence? Like, what had you intended to spend the summer of 2018 doing? And I think some of our listeners will want to know, like, what do you do when you're not writing and thinking about these issues? What do you do as a human being? First question, uh, what I started out this summer doing was writing blogs for a company that sold medical marijuana to people and drove, uh, this company is called Stemless and was basically trying to be the grub hub of medical marijuana. So you order it online, they drive it to your house. And so I was writing a blog for them. I was writing a blog about different strains of weed to get different kinds of high. That is not the answer I expected. I bet it's not. No. But that's the best internship that I could get. What do I, okay, so what And that's I, how a lot of writers make a buck, right? Yeah. They just, you know, yeah, yeah. who's paying? But this this internship was actually unpaid. Okay. I was just trying so, to... So was that you were... You were promoting marijuana to, delivery on an yep. unpaid basis? Yes. Wow. I figured if I write for this website this summer, I'll get a better writing gig next summer. But you say it, it taught you something. You mean like writing fast, writing serviceable copy, writing writing to order? It taught me which strains of weed get you which kinds of high. I'm not sure it taught me much <laughs> else, frankly. Okay. And that ended quickly. Anyway, so what do I do in my spare time? I play a lot of table tennis. 
recently. That's what I've been doing. I, I got a. Uh, I love that you said table tennis, and not which I play also, and not ping pong because serious table tennis <laughs> players understandably get mad when you yes. play ping pong. Frat boys play ping pong. Yeah. Refined gentlemen and ladies play yeah. table tennis. I spend most of my time reading and writing, but outside of that, I I'm also still a musician. I play once a week at a jazz club called the Jazz Standard. Well, with the Mingus Big Band, and I occasionally tour with them, and I hang out with friends and family. I think you have the coolest hobbies of any Quillette contributor, because <laughs> usually when I do these interviews, it's like it doesn't involve a lot of musical touring. Mm-hmm. And next time you're in Toronto, we will play table tennis, because yes. uh, I enjoy the sport myself. Awesome. I uh, thank you for being a good sport uh, and for coming to visit our studio and sharing your thoughts on all sorts of things. Glad and to be here. Good luck for the rest of 2018. I'm sure we'll be reading more of your stuff in Quillette. Thank you. I'm Jonathan Kay, and I will see you on the next episode. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to Quillette.com where you will find more content.